0: Uh, starting a new series uh, tonight and one of the things that I have always enjoyed doing and speaking about going back to your roots when I first started preaching the thing that I liked to do was character studies. I enjoyed finding various figures in the Old Testament and preaching on those, those people. Those were like my first gospel meetings that I ever did when I would go places and break out Uh, Joseph or somebody like that and uh, I'm excited about this series because it allows that same opportunity uh, because 1st and 2nd Kings which by the way like 1st and 2nd Samuel, one book broken into, uh, is very different from what we've been doing. Uh, What we have been doing really for quite a while is tracking God's plan of redemption as seen in these various figures. And I believe Second Samuel 24 is intended to be the culmination of that because it ends with this thunderous point of... David has come and has interceded for the sins of Israel and and has spared the people. That's what we've been waiting for for an awfully long time. I mean, we've been waiting for that back from Moses when Moses and a prophet like me would arise with these kinds of pictures and then ultimately ending on on David Uh, first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles are ultimately different. Uh, Both of those books are written after the exile. Chronicles is a much more positive book in the retelling of history. It's trying to teach Israel how to restore their worship and how to come back to God after all of their failings. However... 1st and 2nd Kings is not so positive rather it's somewhat of the opposite it's explaining why Israel is in exile this is a, a a very negative book and is ultimately going to explain the fall of Israel and the fall of Israel is exemplified in the life of Solomon and that's what our series will be is we're going to look at the life of Solomon and call that series rise and fall because With Solomon, we're going to see Israel come to its greatest heights and then be utter catastrophe and break into pieces and never come back to the greatness of what it was under Solomon's reign. And so God is going to give us this picture through Solomon's life which then symbolizes Israel as to here's why they should have rose and here's what God wanted of his people and then ultimately here's why they fell and why they went into exile and the big question that overhangs that if you think about there's going to be the decimation of the kingdom and here are the people in exile being told about here here is why Israel fell the big question would be how can there be hope in the face of human failure if people are going to fail so catastrophically against God then how is there going to be any future hope how is God going to accomplish his purpose how is he going to save the world especially if you think about the lens that we are going to read about the son of David this is the son of David this is Solomon this is the one and yet we are going to see ultimately the wheels come off. And so what we have then in, in 1 Kings is, is really exemplified even in the life of Solomon. And it is exemplified in this first chapter because this first chapter is going to be about walking worthy. And I think that's an important picture that is going to be betrayed in this chapter. Now, how this chapter opens It is pretty fascinating because it is a clear break from the first and second Samuel account. In Samuel, we have seen David depicted as this vibrant leader. A great leader with his mighty warriors and establishing the kingdom and saving the people, redeeming Israel. He has been a positive figure of how he has been able to seek the Lord with all of his heart. But 1 Kings opens, and its point is not anything to do with David, but really to cast a negative shadow on David. The very first picture we're given is, now King David was old and advanced in years, 1 Kings 1 verse 1, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not keep war. The picture of David is now reversed. David is now depicted as this powerless, frail, weak king who is unable to rule, unable to even keep himself warm. And that is then depicted in this frailty and weakness that he possesses. And so it's a far cry from the picture of David that we've seen up to this point of winning battles and establishing kingdom and overthrowing giants and putting down the foes and surviving on the run. It is David, you can throw all the blankets on him you want. He can't even stay warm. We have a frail, powerless, weak king. And that is all the more depicted in what's told to us in verses 2 through 4. Verse 2, therefore, his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my Lord the king and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my Lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not." All right, you might have read that at points and thought, what is happening here? And I hope that we would recognize that it is a negative statement about David. That is how this book wants to open. Because if ultimately the concern is for David to keep warm... He has a myriad of wives that could probably deal with that. We're going to read about Bathsheba here in just a moment, never mind the other wives that he possesses. Not only that, if warmth is the only concern, then why do we need to seek through all the kingdom for a beautiful young woman to be the one who is going to now be able to keep David warm? The statement here that's made about they find this beautiful woman, but they had no relations is not a statement about moral integrity, but rather a statement about his frailty. It is about his weakness. In fact, I think it is interesting that the way Kings wants to end David's life as it pushes forward in the fall of, of, of Israel is to speak about the last thing we hear about David is ultimately the thing that has started his downfall will also be the end of his downfall as well. His downfall begins with beautiful Bathsheba in his arms and now we have a beautiful woman in his arms as the scene closes. It's a far cry from the book of Samuel that it wanted to paint of David, Rather, this is setting up an opportunity for what's about to happen. That David is weak, he is frail, and he is unable to rule over this kingdom. And I think the implication... Is that it is because of his sin. That this is the outcome of his sinning. We, we see movies and TV shows that like to play upon that, that as wickedness increases there is this physical effect on the human as they deteriorate because of all of their wickedness. And that seems to be the symbolism here is that here we have David and and just kind of pushing him to the side and say, he is weak, he is frail, he can't even rule, he can't keep himself warm. And Eve has a beautiful woman in his arms. That even isn't working. Nothing is going to, to work. That's how weak he is. That is how far he has fallen away in terms of his ability to rule over this kingdom. And what the writer of Kings wants us to see is really a power void ha- has occurred. That's what the very next verse is after setting up this weakness of David. Verse 5 tells us about Adonijah. Adonijah, the son of Haggith, uh, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Because David is so weak, he is unable to rule. He is essentially being deemed useless as ruler at this point. Adonijah says, Hey everybody, I'm the king. And we can understand why he would think so in terms of age, he's next in line. The older ones have been killed at this point. We don't have Absalom anymore. We don't know what happened to the oldest, but Adonijah is now next in line by the count of Second Samuel However, we know the promise that's been given to David that it's supposed to be Solomon. Solomon's going to be next in line, but Adonijah does not appear to have a regard for that. Instead, he exalts himself to the throne. In fact, verse 5 might sound awfully familiar to you. Because those numbers and those actions are exactly what Absalom did when he exalted himself to the throne and tried to usurp it from David. So you are getting a picture of Adonijah as... He is just like Absalom. He is exalting himself to the throne. He is taking the same actions as Absalom in gathering his forces and gathering his people and riding around, proclaiming himself to be king. And in fact, I think it is interesting to notice in verse verse 5 or end of verse 6, it says, he was also a very handsome man born next after Absalom. Well, that's as strong as the connectors you can get. Remember, Absalom was flowing long hair guy who never cut his hair except once a year, and that whole scene that was given to us. Well, Ad and I just being thrown right next to Absalom. He acts like Absalom. He is handsome like Absalom. Absalom. He exalts himself to the throne like Absalom. He is running around claiming to be king like Absalom. And I think there's a really interesting. Teaching that God wants to zero in on right here. Notice in verse six, it didn't have to say this, but it wants us to learn something very important. Verse six, his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Another ding on David is dug out right here. And what an interesting point that the author wants to make that one of David's failures is that he never restrained his son. Now think about how God is putting David's parenting skills in the category of Eli. Eli failed to restrain his sons and it led to the devastation of the priesthood and the flipping of the priesthood line. Here is David who never restrained Adonijah. I mean, he never displeased him, never said, why have you done what you've done? And ultimately, This is going to be a picture of the demise again as Adonijah now is rising up against the will of David and against the will of God because he's never been restrained. He has never been told that he's doing something displeasing. And we can't walk away from this point too quickly since the the text bears it out right here that it is important for us to realize that the goal of parenting is not to keep your kids happy. Apparently David thought so. And apparently Eli thought so. Well, we just, we don't want to displease them. We don't want to restrain them. We don't want to tell them no. We would never want to do that. And I want you to see the text is clearly saying you don't want to have that parenting kind of mentality. That rather there needs to be a restraint. There needs to be telling them no. There needs to be saying, why have you done what you've done? And there needs to be consequences for doing those things. Uh, We live in a culture today that tells us for parenting, the goal is to keep them happy, let them have what they want, let them do what they want, let them express themselves, let them do as they please. It'll all be fine later on. And I just want you to see David never said no. David never apparently restrained or disciplined. And now he's going to have Adonijah do what he's about to do. That will ultimately lead Adonijah's demise. And I think that's important to see is that the goal of parenting is discipline and correction. The goal of parenting is to raise our children to love God and to not be self-indulgent, selfish brats, but to be people who honor God and honor others. And the fastest way to have somebody not honor God and not be honorable to others and not be honorable in society is to never restrain your kids. And it's so interesting that the author here wants to go out of his way. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to say that right here. He just could have said, you know, I just being a, been a pain. He's being a mess. But he wants to tell you, David had a failure here. David made a mistake didn't stop his son, didn't tell him no, didn't say, you need to quit that, never challenged him. And now we have Adonijah uh, doing what he's doing now, acting like Absalom, Absalom, becoming a rebel against the will of David, and now basically rallying everybody for this kingship. It is particularly interesting to note that we have in in verse uh, 7 as he has Joab and he has Abiathar the priest on his side Uh, that should be pretty stunning that Joab the right hand man commander for David and Abiathar who was right there with David and a helper of David even while they're on the run uh, is not on David's side but is actually here with uh, Adonijah while contrast. We have with, while Joab and Abiathar are with Adonijah, verse 8, we have Zadok and Benaiah and Nathan. Uh, they are, along with the mighty men, not with Adonijah, but they remain faithful to David and ultimately to Solomon. That is a very important text. It won't come out tonight, but knowing who is on whose side plays out in chapter two in very big ways. The, the, The line has been drawn and the die is cast and everybody has chosen their new king. And just to see that who is on Adonijah's side is Abiathar and Joab. Well, this causes a very big problem because now Nathan comes to Bathsheba and says, we have a problem. Adonijah is going around the city proclaiming himself to be king. He is uh, now going to hold this tremendous feast and inviting the important people and Israel to hear how he is king and essentially coronating himself to the throne all on his own within earshot of Jerusalem where the location that's told to us in this section was very close to Jerusalem. And so Nathan comes to Bathsheba and says, here's what you need to do. You need to go into David and you need to say, did you... Make Adonijah king? I thought you swore it would be Solomon because Adonijah is saying he's king. And Nathan says, no sooner that you get done saying those words, I'll run in and I'll say the exact same thing. I thought Solomon was supposed to be king, but Adonijah is running around claiming to be king. David, did you anoint Adonijah to be king? And so that's what happens. Bathsheba goes in and informs David of, of Adonijah's proclamation as king. Quickly after that, Nathan comes running in and says the very same thing, confirming everything that Bathsheba had said. In verse 28, you have David then calling for Bathsheba to come in and he makes an oath in verse 29. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying Solomon, your son, shall reign after me. He shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. And so David says, Solomon's king. That's what God said. I made an oath. And so I am proclaiming that this very day that Solomon is to take the throne. And so Adonijah is tempted to, fill this power vacuum because of the weakness of David and the weakness of his reign and the not even knowing what Adonijah is doing uh, we see him to, trying to take that that void and become king himself Nathan and Bathsheba come to the rescue and say it needs to be Solomon right and David goes yes of course it is Solomon he is going to be king well nothing ruins a coronation party then having the king say, no, you're actually not going to be king. Uh, I know that you were next in line, Adonijah, but what David then says is for Solomon to be run around and everybody in Israel proclaiming Solomon is the new king and basically long live, live Solomon. And the crowds that are praising Solomon and rejoicing over Solomon are so loud in their proclamation and praise that they can, at their little party that they're having for Adonijah's coronation, they hear this uproar and are wondering, well, what exactly is going on? And so one of the messengers comes in thinking it's good news that all of Israel is really excited about Adonijah. And they're like, no, Adonijah, sorry, bad news. It's not about you. It's actually that David has anointed and appointed Solomon to now be king, and not you, and you can imagine all the friends now slink away. <laughs> you know everybody who was on your side don't don't have the power figure anymore, and so they all slide away from from Adonijah at, at this this point. And Adonijah knows that he is in trouble, and so what Adonijah does is he now is going to go on the run to try to find mercy. Verse 50, we are told, Adonijah feared Solomon, so he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. You're going to see that happen a few times. And you might wonder, where in the world does that come from? Why do people keep running to the horns of the altar to grab onto it? What you had back in the law of Moses was that if you accidentally killed somebody rather than the avenger of the the kinsman avenger coming and killing you, you could run to the altar where that priest was in a city of refuge. And lay hold of the horns of the altar, indicating it was an accident. The priest then would determine if it was an accident or not. If it was not an accident, he'd allow the kinsman redeemer who was coming to avenge the blood that you spilled. Then to go ahead and pronounce his judgment and kill that person for the death that that person had caused. But if it was an accident, remember that person was allowed to stay in the city of refuge until the priest had died. Well, that's the imagery that's happening here is then grabbing the horns of the altar becomes synonymous with begging for mercy. And that's what Adonijah now does. It's not that he has killed somebody, but he knows he's in trouble. And so he's begging for mercy and he goes and he grabs the horns of the altar. Verse 51, this was told to Solomon that he's holding on to the horns of the altar saying, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. So he will not let go, but is instead begging for Solomon's mercy. Don't kill me, don't execute me. I know that I've done wrong. And the words that you see Solomon say are the key to this chapter, the key of our lesson tonight, and it's the key to the book. And it's ultimately the key to the kingdom of God. Listen to what he says in verse 52. And Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, then he shall die. That's the message. That's the big point Solomon makes. Okay, Adonijah, you have a chance. And here is your opportunity. Show yourself to be a worthy person. Can I translate that as to show your repentance bear fruit worthy of repentance you tried to claim the throne then show yourself a worthy person and nothing will happen to you live your life differently and think about ultimately what Solomon would be saying is you must submit to the kingship of Solomon you need to submit to the reign of Solomon so Act worthy, change the way you're living, show your repentance, submit to King Solomon, and nothing will happen to you. But show your wickedness, show you haven't changed at all, show a lack of repentance, show that you are unwilling to submit to the rule of Solomon, and it will not go well for you. And then it says he must die. I want us to think about how that is a clear New Testament message. Think about how the Apostle Paul makes the exact same proclamation that sounds so similar to what Solomon tells Adonijah in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. After describing the grace of God for three chapters in the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul then says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's the idea right there. That's the very picture. You have been shown mercy and you have been shown grace. Now what are you going to do with it? Now are you going to walk in a manner worthy of what has been bestowed upon you? Or will wickedness remain in you? That's the question Solomon is essentially giving to Adonijah. The choice is yours of ultimately what are you going to do? Are you going to show your repentance? Are you going to live a different life because of the grace that is going to be extended to you at this moment? Really the ball is in Adonijah's court. What are you going to do now? I'm going to give you mercy Now, what is ultimately going to be your response? Now, when we talk about being worthy, sometimes we get stuck on that. And I think it's important to clarify that concept because I think often we come along and go, well, I can never be worthy of what God has done. And true and amen. That's right. That's not what the text is saying. The text is not saying You now need to be worthy of of what God has done. That is an impossibility. There is no way to be worthy of the grace of God. There is no way to be worthy of the blood of Christ. But if you read it carefully, that's not what Paul said, nor is that what Solomon is saying to Adonijah. What he is saying is you need to live your life in such a way That is compatible with the grace that's been extended to you. That's what living worthy looks like. It doesn't mean you are worthy. But you are going to live your life differently now. So that it matches what has happened to you. It will match then the grace that has been extended. I won't be that worthless person anymore is what Adonijah should be thinking right now. That's what she should be ultimately saying. I won't be a usurper. I won't try to overthrow. I will submit to you. I will do what you say. I will show my sorrow. I will live worthy of what you've done for me. that's the idea, not that you are intrinsically worthy. It can't be. But that how we live and how we act reflects what ultimately has been done for us. And I think it's important to consider at the end of the day, uh, we are Adonijah. Ultimately, the painting here is. Israel is going to be a reflection of what Adonijah does here. And we so are we that we are a people who have exalted ourselves. We have lived doing what we want to do. We have put ourselves on the throne and saying, I'm in charge. I'm going to do what I want to do. And grace is being extended to us. And now God is saying, now what are you going to do with the grace? Are you going to continue to exalt yourself on the throne and be in charge? Or are you going to submit to the reign of the son of David? Are you going to listen to what the Christ says to do? Or are you going to show your your unworthiness by continuing to be in rebellion? This is very much the picture of this chapter of this book of really the whole of history and the problem of humanity is the decision of who's on the throne and who is in charge. Is it God or is it us? We are called to live differently because of the new life that has been given to us. In fact, if you continued reading in Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 1, after calling us to walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called, listen to what he continues with. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see how there's a description of life change? You see what God has done for you? Bear fruit worthy of that. Live a life that's different. Show humility and gentleness. Bear with one another, show love, endeavor to have peace, be different because you recognize that you are not the one in charge, but God is. And we will live our lives then ultimately in desiring to submit to his reign and his rule. In fact, the very idea of Adonijah running to the horns of the altar and begging for forgiveness as we end the lesson, is somewhat similar to the picture of what was offered to us. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You have a picture of God saying, you can come to the throne room and find mercy. You can come to the horns of the altar, if you will, and find grace. But the question that Solomon put forward to Adonijah should guide how we live our lives. Will we live in such a way that we show that we are worthy in the sense of putting away wickedness, turning from evil, submitting to the will of God, living a life that is compatible with the grace of God. That is the walk that we have been called to do to be worthy of the calling is that we are compatible in our lives with the grace that's been extended. Or, as he continued, or if wickedness is found in us, then we shall die. Will we continue then to go on doing what we've always done with no repentance, no fruit of change, and no desire to follow him? Let's go to God in prayer as we close. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the offer of mercy. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to repent. Thank you for choosing to offer that we would have a choice as to our outcome that we can submit to you or not and we thank you for your patience we thank you that you give us such a long opportunity to choose to serve you and so lord we we praise you for your long suffering and patience we we thank you that you continue to endure with people like us and with all humanity and all of our sin And we understand that it's a display of your love, a display of your mercy and grace. Lord, forgive us for when we have had wickedness and when we've continued to be on the throne doing what we want to do rather than submitting. Lord, not only do we pray for forgiveness, we pray for boldness and strength to submit to submit to your will. To really bear fruit that shows our repentance and shows our change. And that we could be like the Apostle Paul said, that we would walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. This wonderful grace you've given to us. Lord, strengthen us in our humility and gentleness. Strengthen us in our dealings with one another. May we be more loving and kind. May we be the people that you have called us to be because you've extended such grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a psalm now in just a moment. And if there's any way we can help you respond to the invitation that God is offering of grace and mercy to come to Him with all of your heart and change your ways before it's too late, we certainly encourage you to do that this this very evening. Won't you come and do that?